Welcome to Discovering Academia, an interdisciplinary podcast with preeminent professors from around the world, striving to stoke the curiosity of scholars everywhere. Today we talk with Jesse Drew, video maker, multimedia artist, and associate professor of cinema and digital media at UC Davis. His work spans all across the world, with a central message of advocating for public access to media production and distribution. In this episode, we talk about media, past, present, and future, and its importance on our society. Additionally, we speak about the value of understanding the technologies we interact with on a daily basis and developing an intentionality in our relationship with them. We hope you enjoy. Welcome, Professor Jesse Drew. Thank you for coming on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me here. We'd love to start off by hearing a little bit more about your story, how you got to Davis, and what got you interested in cinema and digital media. Well, that's a very long story. Um, uh, Where do I even begin on that? So I've been here at the University of California, Davis for 20 years now, which is kind of shocking. And I had no idea I would ever wind up in the, as a professor, let alone as even a student. Um, My background is, I think, kind of strange really for uh you know for a university professor i i was not destined to be a professor my i didn't come from a university family my parents didn't go to college etc cetera, etc cetera. i myself was a high school dropout at 15 and i ran away from home at 15 and wow. never went back um and so the you know the trajectory to get here was kind of long and kind of strange. I, I worked a lot of um, industrial jobs as a kid. I uh, worked in factories. I've done um, some construction and working in canneries, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of kind of grunt work. I worked in warehouses. I was a Teamster warehouseman. Uh, and then I worked on in, uh, I was hired by Hewlett Packard to work uh, on the on the assembly line, essentially. Uh, And I got really interested in electronics at the time that was really kind of the early days of Silicon Valley. Uh, And um, I went to, uh, I got my GED and I started going to school at night uh, and I got an uh, an AS in electronics. Mm -hmm. And that kind of led me into like, well, I really like education, going to school, et cetera. So um, then I started working on a BA and I got <clears throat> very involved in what's called electronic arts. Um, at the time, I was really interested in video technology. Uh, and um, so I started working in that. I started, uh, a, I joined a collective of people called Paper Tiger TV and we were doing what's called, what's called guerrilla television, essentially. And uh and then I got a job at a, an electronic startup. Um, I went back to school at night, essentially, got a BA in a program called InterArts, which is interdisciplinary arts. Um, uh, and at the time, it was unusual because I wanted to combine electronics with creative arts, which was kind of unheard of at the time. You know, if you were in the arts, you were in painting or sculpture. Yeah. And, you know, people worked in electronics were not artists but that's what I was interested in. <clears throat> so um, at, there was a particular time when I was still just working on my BA, going to night school, essentially. Uh, and they, this was at San Francisco State, and they really okay. wanted somebody to teach electronic arts, some of this new stuff 
uh, that people were experimenting with new things like Photoshop one, you know? And so I knew that stuff. I, so they asked, they hired me to teach these classes. And, uh, at the time I was working at Dolby laboratories. And so yeah. I was, you know, very involved in tech stuff. And I was interested in combining, uh, technical work with the arts, I eventually finished my BA um, and I went on to get a master's there in broadcasting because I was very involved in production. I was still working my regular full-time job. Uh, and then I had a mentor there who was um, really important to me because uh, um, she sort of showed me that you could still kind of be the person you are without pretending you're someone else. And yeah. I was not interested in pretending that I was a professor type, you know? Yeah. Um, but I was doing very well in school. I was like, you know, summa cum laude, and then I won all these, you know, scholarships, you know? So I was like, well, I know I can do this. I mean, I'm, you know, and then she convinced me to go to, to get a PhD. And so I, I applied for, I said, okay, well, I'll, I'll go, I'll apply for one school. If I get in, it's, it was like my crapshoot. If I get in, I'll do that. If not, I'll just continue working in the electronics industry. So I applied for University of Texas at Austin because I really like their program because they combine all of the um, time-based media. You could do radio, TV, film, et cetera, in oh, the wow. same department. Um, so I, I got in. They went to that. And then after that, I was pretty high demand. I was hired immediately to run the uh, digital media program at the San Francisco Art Institute. They made me assistant, no, associate dean. Uh, and then um, then I was hired by UC Davis. UC Davis wanted to create a program called Technocultural Studies. And so I was one of a few people they hired to come here and start this program. So that's how I wound up in Davis. Uh, yeah. And we built Technocultural Studies from scratch essentially they just gave us the name can you build something around so that was something called technocultural studies i don't even think they knew what that was yeah <clears throat> so we built this program and we hired a few faculty and eventually we had you know i signed up the first student to, to who wanted to study tcs uh and the program grew eventually uh, the university asked us to absorb film studies uh, and, um, and then we changed our name to cinema and digital media. Yeah. Now we have over, I don't know, almost 400 undergrads wow. and about almost 15 full-time faculty. I was chair for six years, but I haven't been anymore. So mm -hmm. I'm just been teaching my classes and doing my research. That was a very long winded sort of story, yeah. but that's why that's that how great. I'm here. That's great. Real quick. What is gorilla TV? So the gorilla TV movement comes out of, um, uh, I guess you could say, it, well, there's a long history to it, but it, it's, it comes out of people who wanted to make television that kind of got around the barrier of the big television monopolies. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, even, you know, when I was a kid, there were really only three broadcasts networks yeah. right yeah. abc cbs nbc there was really nowhere else to see television and so it was really locked down so good the gorilla tele television movement came out of i guess you could say the porta pack movement sony uh, had invented a quarter inch black and white reel to reel mm. uh, uh equipment pack that you know ordinary mortals could <laughs> maybe afford and use 
And so uh, there was a movement called Guerrilla Television. I actually have one of the original documents, books called Guerrilla Television. Wow. Of people who wanted to make TV that was, you know, uh, maybe avant-garde, political, non-censored. And so it was a pretty big movement that, you know, incorporated both people who wanted to make political video and people who were artists like Namjoon Pike, if you're mm-hmm. familiar yeah. with him, you know. And so uh, it was a big movement coming out of this, well, 70s, definitely the 80s with, uh, uh, you know, with uh, the VHS, uh, you know, Portapacks that really, then it really exploded. Yeah. Um, I think one of the most sort of important things that came out of that was the Rodney King tape yeah. with LAPDs beating up Rodney King. And that kind of launched like a consciousness of like, whoa, like we can record this stuff on our own and distribute it on our own. And I was very involved in that through the collective. I was a member of Paper Tiger TV mm-hmm. and also another project called Deep Dish Television, where we created a network and a national network based on satellite transmission and we were connected to between three to 500 uh, local television channels. And we would produce material and send it up on satellite for them to download and distribute locally. So, you know, guerrilla television was just a way of sort of challenging the monopoly of, uh, that was held by the, uh, the television yeah. corporations. Yeah, super interesting. And then could you give us a definition of technoculture? Because I don't think that term is too prevalent nowadays. Technoculture, I think, um, well, I can show you a bunch of books that that have technoculture in them. Um, But really, it's sort of like looking, well, it was kind of a niche kind of thing of people who were interested in maybe culture jamming through technology. So it was people who were experimenting on the fringes of technology and the intersections of technology and culture. So a lot of like some of the arts artists mm, that I've mentioned, yeah. Guerrilla Television, they're all kind of part of technoculture. Technoculture also, I think, had a, had a big part in the early days of the internet uh, because um, there were a lot of artists and hackers and crackers who were really interested in programming and playing with computers uh, and incorporating computers into everyday work. And they were definitely part of technoculture too, sort of early bulletin board services and, uh, you know, just a lot of sort of activism and, and hacking and, and phone freaking also, mm-hmm. if you're familiar with phone freaking, people who are experimenting with technology to hack into the phone system. Um, of course, one of the big um, hackers and phone freakers of the time was Steve Jobs. Mm-hmm. That I think uh, a lot of people don't know that that that's kind of where he fits in, sort of. You know, I always show my students this picture of Steve Jobs and Wozniak holding one of their blue boxes they made, which they used to hack into the phone system. It's totally illegal. It allowed <laughs> you to make long distance phone calls for free uh, by hacking into the phone system. I mean, that's their roots. So, I mean, you can say that Apple Computer comes out of that that, that world. Yeah. And how do you define electronic media? Well, that's a, you know, <laughs> defining media uh, is, I think, the hard thing. Because a lot of people think, um, well, media is, you know, it's a CD or it's a movie. Um, I think me, I tend to draw more upon like Marshall McLuhan, for example, 
or a guy named Bruce Sterling, who's a science fiction writer who kind of came up with this concept of dead media. Um, media is, it has a lot to do with the, the extension of the senses, um, to the, the point that you can record human thought. Uh, it's a very broad term. And so the electronic media is just those, those same things, except, you know, it's, um, the information is moved around by electronics, but it, it doesn't have to be electronics. I mean, some of the examples I use, I mean, a, uh, a telescope is a media, it is a media instrument. It's an extension of your eye. Uh, you know, a microscope is, is similar. I mean, uh, so, um, yeah, to, it's an extension of the senses is what I, I generally refer to media. Now, certainly, you know, television and records certainly are part of that, but I, I see it as much broader, much broader than that. Yeah. Super interesting. And nowadays we are flooded with technology. It's everywhere. We're all very, very familiar with it. Could you speak to the importance of understanding technological history and maybe some of the predecessor technologies that got us to where we are now, especially at a mechanistic sense? Especially what? At a mechanistic level. Mm -hmm. Like yeah. why understanding how older technologies works impacts how we view technology today and where it's going to go in the future. Yeah, I think understanding where that technology uh, comes from is uh, really critical because we do live in a hyper-technological society. And I think that too many people just don't understand the technology. And so that leaves them open to just kind of taking whatever is given to them by, you know, advertising and you know, the hype, you know, I think that people have to have a critical view to the technology that they adopt. And I think one way of demystifying the technology, mm -hmm. and that's really one of the thing, one of the things that I'm definitely involved in is understanding where the, some of this stuff comes from and understanding a lot of this stuff is not new at all. Uh, and there's reasons why some technologies last a long time, uh, and there's some, you know, and there's other reasons why technologies come and go in a, in a flash and are, and are gone. Um, and so I think, you know, I mean, ultimately to me, you know, and this leads to some of my other concerns, media is very uh, central to democracy mm -hmm. uh, because media is the way that people communicate with one another. And I think that is really essential to democracy. So if you don't understand the media technology that surrounds you, I think that you're at a disadvantage so, you know, I, for example, I teach media archaeology, which is a very large class, 200 people. And in that class, we kind of trace the background of a lot of these things uh, and look at like a lot of ideas are not new at all. Um, <clears throat> so, for example, uh, oh, like the fax machine, for example, like when did the fax machine come along? I usually kind of poll people, many people, any idea. And most people think in oh, the 70s. You know, which is true. That's really where the fax machine sort of took off. There was a certain period where, yeah, everything had to be faxed. Mm -hmm. This is just before the internet. Well, the fax machine was invented in the 20s. Uh, and I said, well, that's weird. Like, why didn't we see them until the 70s? Well, it's because the um, uh, some of the tech companies didn't want people to have fax machines. So some of these patents were bought out and suppressed, you know, and a lot of people, you know, don't understand that. Uh, that there's all kinds of other reasons why technologies, you know, either succeed or fail or when they're released. Um, we have this kind of mythology that, 
you know, as soon as good things come along, they're available to us, sort of a you know, technological determinist kind of point of view where we're just on this ever, ever upward, you know, uh, rate of progress mm-hmm. uh, with these technologies. It's just not how it, uh, it happens. Uh, television, I think, is another example. I always, you know, say, well, when did television, you know, when was television invented? Most people say it was invented in the 50s because that's when, you know, TV industry started. Well, it was invented in the 20s. Yeah. Well, why didn't, why was there no television? Yeah. Well, the radio companies were not thrilled with that. Yeah. Also other factors too, the Great Depression. So there was no money. There was World War II where a lot of the resources had to go for that. So it was kind of held back for 30 years. Um, so I think it's important to understand all those things. Um, one of the things uh, that I also like to point out is um, uh, there's certain types of lenses, anamorphic lenses that are used today in the cinema industry. Um, and it's kind of considered, oh, this is a really cool thing. It allows you to sort of use like a standard, uh, you know, um, CCD or a standard you know, 35 millimeter frame, but, and, but then, you know, br- you know record, uh, sort of compress the light that comes in through, mm-hmm. through a wider angle and then, and, you know, um, project it out as a wider thing. And a lot of people think, well, that's kind of a newer phenomenon in terms of the history of cinema. That's actually something that's over 400 years old. People wow. were using that process uh, for, you know, looking at, um, for making toys, essentially. And I, and I show some of these toys in, in my class. They're kind of optical effects kind of toys, you know. Um, so I just think it's important that people, you know, look around and say, okay, well, that's, this is cool. Um, what did it, uh, what does it do really? Um, how new is it? Uh, how important is it? Uh, you know, rather than just, you know, oh, wow, this is new. So mm-hmm. I, I got to have it. So I, I think that's, you know, it's, it's technological choices, but also I think it's goes back to <clears throat> democracy and public participation that we should be able to say what's something that's beneficial and what's not, and just kind of accept it as like, well, it's new, so we've got to use it, which I think, you know, a lot of people, do. I mean, there's a lot of conversation now about, you know, the role of social media, certainly, obviously. I mean, that's a big thing, whether it's, you know, sort of an underlying cause of a lot of depression of young kids, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I think it's, we have to consider all those, you know, good things and bad things. And, and it's illuminating to see things that we, that were really popular in the past that are no longer popular today and, and, and why, and why not. So I think looking at the history just allows people to make more um, educated uh, choices about their, their media world. Yeah, definitely. Do you think that there's a like limiting factor almost for the growth of this technological innovation where if the, one of the main points of technology and media is communication. It seems like we're headed in a direction where that communication is more so virtual and less so real. Mm. Um, And I don't know exactly if there's weight that can be placed on a virtual communication when compared to a real conversation, Mm. real connection, but it seems to be a more dull experience. A more what? A more dull experience. Yeah. I think that's, you know, 
kind of goes to a lot of the crux of these things. I mean, you know, we're, we're human beings and I believe we need a certain form of human to human communication that is lost when we surrender that to machines. Um, and I think that has a big part of the sort of alienation of particularly young people today. You know, that's one of the reasons why I like to teach a, a, my radio class here. It's a live radio class. It's like um, people sign up for the class, think they're going to learn about radio, but I don't tell them till the first day that we're actually going live on the radio. And this like everyone's face just turns like being red, like what? That's amazing. <laughs> And so, yeah, two days you have to come in and you have them write the radio manifestos and they have to come in and read them live on, on the air. And it's kind of interesting. Like people are just not used to doing that. I mean, the, the notion that they're putting something out there live that can't be edited, you know, like a TikTok, you know, and that like you can, you know, it's like it's live. Like once you say it, it's out there and gone and... um it's very, I think, re rewarding and exhilarating for a lot of students to kind of make that connection, to kind of break out of that um, sort of insulated barrier that people hide behind in social media. And I think that's one of the reasons why there's so much animosity and kind of hatred on the web, because people can hide behind these platforms. Uh, and I think it's really debilitating to the human spirit not to have face-to-face uh, -face connection with people. Uh, and it's, you know, I mean, life is sensory. There's all kinds of, you know, sensory communication going on. Uh, even in this room, you know, there's weird ambient sounds you hear there's light there's shadow there's smell there's all kinds of weird things going on here and i think to just limit it to the that the, you know form of communication through social media is choking uh you know it's a it's a thin channel of communication as communication people would say it's it's very thin it's not rich and i think we're people are starving <laughs> because of it um and uh yeah, I mean, one of my, um, like, I, I actually, looking at it right over there, I have my dissertation in that thing. And one of my dissertation, my dissertation really was on advanced communication technologies and the labor movement. And it was looking at um, people who are trying to organize workers across borders because we know we live in a period of international commerce. Mm -hmm. uh, and typically industries were national, but now, of course, they're international. And so, um, one of the interesting things about that is I interviewed over 125 la labor union organizers uh, and a lot of times people who work across borders. And they all said, you know, and I was looking at what would be the role of these new media communication technologies because an email, for example, can cross an international border pretty easily. But all of them still said, yeah, all that stuff's important, but bottom line is face-to-face. -face. Like, you have to make face-to-face -face connection. It's the person-to-person -person is uh, essential. Uh, so all that stuff can help, uh, but you still have to have a real personal human connection to people. And I think that's true across the board for people in general. And I think that's what's really lacking in our culture today, particularly among young people. Yeah, most certainly. If you were to go back in time and look probably at, the Vietnam War mm. and the role media played there. Mm. I think that caused, from my 
I don't, I'm 23 years old. I don't, <laughs> I wasn't there. Yeah. But from my perspective, that allowed for a lot of the division and the protesting and because people were seeing war probably for the first time at the scale that they saw it. Mm-hmm. And do you draw any parallels between the divisive nature of social media now and some of those older technologies and how media influenced the political uprisings during that period? Well, yeah, I think that's a pretty rich question. I mean, there's, first of all, this huge difference between coverage of war back then and now. Mm-hmm. Um, Vietnam, you could uh, go there and, you know, the coverage of the war in Vietnam was oftentimes brutal and realistic. You, it was, to a large extent, it was the, la- it was the last war uh, that was fairly uncensored. Yeah. Um, and, and, and a lot of the, you know, the kind of military establishment after that, we realized that if we go to war again, we're not going to just let people just, just shoot that stuff. Um, I have a, you know, I, I don't have it now. I have a really great poster and the poster is a picture, this very famous picture of a South Vietnamese police officer, um, blowing the brains out of a, someone that he had just captured that he suspected was working for. Was that the one where the guy was kneeling on the ground? No. Well, yeah, yes. Yeah. It's a very famous photo. Yeah, right? very yeah, famous yeah, yeah. photo. I've seen the yeah, actual no, print. Had, there's yeah. a poster of it. It's really great. Yeah. The, poster is, the poster shows the whole image that you saw, but there is a, there is a square drawn over the, uh, the, sort of a close-up that eliminates a lot of the details of that picture. And the poster caption goes, you know, this is what we would see if the Vietnam War was today. In other words, saying you wouldn't see that whole, you would not see that. You would only see a very censored piece of it if you saw it at all. So the whole idea of the pool, the press pool, the media pool, and the whole notion of embedded troops of him embedded with the troops. I don't know if you're familiar with these things, but could you explain it real quick? Yeah. And so what they do now, they don't allow just journalists to like, oh yeah, just run around and do what you got to do. No, you have to sign up with the military. Mm -hmm. The military places you, they often place you in a platoon or with a unit and say, well, you have to be with these guys. Uh, And so by doing that, you only see the war from one position from the position of us uh you know and also you kind of you know psychologically you kind of identify with the people that you're with and so the media coming out of wartime situations tends to be very one-sided also all media all uh reports are censored they have to they have to be they have to go through the military uh, in order to be um shown uh the first test case after Vietnam was the invasion of Grenada. I don't know if you're familiar with that. It was a uh, essentially a U.S. military invasion, coup d'etat in, in Grenada, because uh, there was a, a guy there, I think his name was Maurice Bishop from the New Jewel Movement. Um, he was a leftist. M- America doesn't like that. So they went there and overthrew it. Uh, but that was the first test case. Like they said, okay, well, if we're going to cover this, you have to be embedded in the military. That, of course, led up to the first Iraq war under, you know, the first Bush, uh, where they had military, you know, the military pools 
as I described, everything had to be censored through the, through the U.S. military, and you had to be embedded in order to cover it. Mm. So those are extreme censorship sorts of things. And through our guerrilla television groups, we worked a lot on that, partic- on that war. Um, we did a whole series called the Gulf Crisis TV Project, where we did a lot of analysis of how the media was covering uh, the first Gulf War. There were massive demonstrations, protests that were totally not covered, deliberately not covered mm-hmm. by the American media. They didn't want to show that oh, there's like 100,000 people here who, who don't want to be, you know, blowing up uh, Iraq, you know, totally censored. Uh, and we did a lot of, re- a lot of my research back then was actually on that censorship. I had access to a, um, a big satellite dish uh, at work and uh I think it was like, I forget, it was either, I think it's called Q-Band or whatever, a big professional, and I don't mean like a little home satellite, yeah. thing, a big one. And so I would go up there and record news feeds that were coming live off the battlefield uh, and from other countries wow. reporting. So I could see how other, the, the material that was, the other countries were reporting that we never saw here. You know, pictures of, for example, you know, um, our side suffering. Right, that was forbidden. Yeah. You, know, you don't show. No one wants to see our soldiers getting blown to pieces, uh, which you saw in Vietnam, and that was one of the reasons why we, you know, there was such a strong visceral reaction against us. Like, oh my God, we're like getting killed over there for what? You know. So they didn't want that, uh, you know, and that was sort of, you know, to me, illustrative, a of the, you know, the censorship that was going on in the United States, but also the fact that I was able to use this satellite dish to record this information. And we showed it on our program because we were building our own sort of guerrilla television kind of network. So we could see what other people were not seeing. Yeah. Um, and that continued into the second Gulf War. I don't know if you remember the big, the big scandal where somebody uh, took a photograph of caskets in a plane. I don't know if you I remember so, that. Yeah. And released it, and the U.S. hit the roof. Like, no, you don't. You know, the reporter was like, "Here's like, you know, a hundred flag draped caskets of our people coming home in a plane." And it's the he, reality of war, huh? It's the reality of war. Yeah, and the U.S. was like, "That was not, you know, that." I think I forget what happened, but there was a big scandal because that should. The U.S. said that should never be released censored we should censor yeah. that people don't want to see our our kids coming home in boxes you know so um <clears throat> yeah it's super interesting because censorship has become a pretty large topic right now yeah with social media and it's yeah i think it's good to highlight that this has been a problem for what 30 40 years now <laughs> yeah at least for yeah even oh even longer, longer. I mean, there's a long history of of censorship. I mean, I could, you know, turn the jump to another project, you know, in that poster there, one of the things I'm working on is a documentary on the politics of country music. Yeah. Uh, and so, um, I don't know if you know who Pete Seeger is. Pete Seeger is a famous mm. folk singer. Yeah. He was really a country singer. I mean, he's a banjo player for crying out loud, you know. Yeah. Uh, but anyways, a whole, a whole history about creating these two different genres, folk music and country, and why the, why the industry wanted to separate them. Because yeah. folk music was considered, oh, these are like leftists, and where country music were like, these are just good old boys singing about, you know, beer and guns, you know. Yeah. But there's actually very little difference between these people. But anyway, Pete Seeger, in, in terms of Americans who say there's no censorship, well, Pete Seeger was banned from TV 
for oh, like 17 years. Wow. Uh, and he's a very famous, you know, musician. Yeah. Uh, and he was banned. Um, there was a show called the Smothers Brothers show, which I'm sure you never heard of. It was a top rated comedy show in the United States. And the Smothers Brothers invited Pete Seeger on to their program. And, uh, there was a there was a big you know kerfluffle about it like the news people were you know the, the network people you know he can't come on uh, and they insisted that he came on and he sang a song called Waist Deep in the Big Muddy which is about being stuck in Vietnam yeah uh, and the show was canceled like two weeks later one of the most popular shows in, in the United States history uh, was pulled off the air and That's so people who say there's no censorship in the United States is they're delusional yeah. Before we go back, we, we were planning on coming back to open country oh, later. Yeah, that's fine. yeah but I, tell, I warned you, I'm going to jump around. No, that's, <laughs> that's great. What are some of the key technologies that you think maybe someone of our generation should understand in order to kind of move forward in a more aware sense? Well, I think uh, I think the social media thing is kind of a big thing. Um, because it just invades so much of people's lives. Um, And that's a very big question because it touches on lots of different things. I don't know how to describe it. It's like a cultivation of the mind that's going on Mm -hmm. that I think is disturbing. Um, Like one of the things I point out too is like people really like algorithm-generated audio programs, right? Like, uh, what do you call it? Um, well, you know, what's the, pull a blank on it, so many apps. You know, what do people, when you listen to music, what do you listen to? Like Spotify. Spotify. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> sorry. That's where a lot of people are going to be listening to this. <laughs> yeah, and so, I mean, for example, you know, there's a big difference between hearing a live DJ, uh, say, on a college radio station, who's like picking and choosing all kinds of different things that are not based on an algorithm. And I think you... I think that's really beneficial. And I think a lot of people tend to be very self-contained like with these things, like they only listen to, pe- to music, they're only exposed to things that are within the box that they've created for themselves. Uh, and the same way with social media, right? They're, you're only in your little, your little world um, and people walking around with earbuds in their ear, not listening to other stuff. Like one of the things I think, you know, a lot of people, older people like my, you know, like myself, like if you're riding in a bus, for example, and you hear conversations of other people, it's like you really kind of gain a lot of knowledge about other, about the world around you. But it just drives me nuts. And people just have these earbuds. They're only, they're only going to hear their own little thing, what they want to hear. And that's of course duplicated in, in all the other platforms where you build your own little world, uh, and uh, I think that's dangerous. I think, you know, and I think people should understand that that's not a good thing. People think, oh, yeah, I can create my own little environment because I'm more comfortable. You're in your comforts or you're in your bubble. I don't think that's a good thing. Uh, Definitely. Not, certainly not for intellectual growth and certainly not for um, uh, democracy where you don't have any understanding of other people outside of your own little world. I think that's dangerous and I think it's debilitating and I think it's depressing <laughs> yeah. to be cut off from the world like that. And I think people should look into the, the political economy of that. Like these things are there because they're making people a lot of money. Uh, it's not because this is a good thing or it's modern and it's like, well, we can do this now, so we should do it. Um, 
I think that's a big problem. I mean, I even saw the problem with cell phones, for example, when cell phones, you know, when people, you see people walking around with cell phones on, um, you know, a neighborhood I used to live in, I lived in the mission district in San Francisco mm-hmm. for a long time. And, um, and in the mission district was, do you know, San Francisco at all? Relatively. Yeah. So I lived there 30 years. And so, um, and I started seeing the waves of techies coming in. There's been three waves of techie gentrification, in, particularly in, in the mission. Um, and I'd see people come in, and I could tell we're in front of the neighborhood. They're just there for whatever, their techie jobs. Walking with, you know, their ear, they got their phone stuck to their ear and walking around oblivious to the neighborhood. They think they're living in the neighborhood, but they're not. They're living in their own little world. Um, and I saw these two guys walking by once, and um, three guys behind him were shot. Uh, and, the, and I saw it from my window. Uh, I actually called the police. Wow. Um, and these guys were oblivious. Did, they had no That's clue insane. that these people had just shot behind them. They just kept walking, stuck in their ear, and it's like, <laughs> uh, it's, it's disturbing. Yeah. I can, a little example of what you're talking about, people having headphones in and all that. I wouldn't be sitting here today with you and Keller if I didn't have, if I had headphones on in the coffee shop because I overheard someone talking about, Oh, this really cool, like film professor, Jesse drew, like, Mm. and hopped on Google. I was like, okay, sweet. We'll we'll contact him. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's a good example. You just, you you hear, you know, I I have all kinds of weird stories that I've absorbed just from hearing people. And it's, you know, you get a, you get a look into other people's lives that you wouldn't get. There's some, something about the serendipity of the world that's lost, you know. And it's ultimately alienating for people, you know. People are cut off and not used to uh, relating to one another, which is, again, one of the reasons why I really like teaching this radio class, because it forces people to be in a room, you know, just like this, around microphones and talk and uh, listen to what other people are saying who, you know, they don't know or anything, you know, and it's, they have, I think, way more interesting conversation. I think it just fires a lot more thoughts in people's mind than living in these kind of boxes that people put themselves in. Yeah, without a doubt. Because especially with like social media, the format is so short. Mm-hmm. That you mean like TikToks, you mean? TikTok, or? Instagram, like whatever it is, it's so quick. Oh, yeah. And it's all blended together. And maybe if I could connect with one person, that might be a, like a nice connection. That might be a beautiful blend. But it's all these different shades of really short, low depth things. Whereas you might be able to connect with everyone, but you're not connecting on anything of value. It's all these really insufficient, quick reactionary things as opposed to... If everyone read a book, if everyone wrote a book and everyone read each other's books, mm-hmm. be a lot more. Yeah, that's a very rich subject. I mean, at first of all, that's been going on for quite a while. Like, you know, one of the things I, I teach editing, television editing. Mm-hmm. I've done I've done a lot of live television back in the day. Um, but it's interesting looking at uh, the history of commercials. Um, uh, my dad was an actor, actually, oh. and he was in a lot of commercials. I mean, nothing big. He's He made his living as a freelance actor his whole life. So it would be funny to go back and look at his commercials. And so I've kind of followed the trajectory. Like back in the day to sell a product, you needed like a minute. 
you know, yeah. and you see the whole, like he's in like this Kellogg's brand buds commercial and you see like this cheesy music and there's like a kitchen and he's walking down the stairs and the wife with the bouffant <laughs> is in the kitchen and pouring the cereal and they're looking at the box. It's like, come on, get to, and over a period of time from the fifties onward, the commercials get really fast. Like now, well, also well, like time on Dubai, t- advertising time, TV is expensive, right? So obviously if you can get your message done in 10 seconds, it's much better than yeah. a minute. Um, but over time, those things just speed up. And so now, like, for example, I kind of contrast that with like a McDonald's commercial that could, could be like 10 seconds where it has like, you know, you know, kids in a hat and then the yellow arches and then French fries, hamburger, whatever, 10 seconds, you're out. And like, you know, oh yeah, it was a commercial for McDonald's. Uh, you couldn't do that. So the whole speeding up thing, I think, has been going on for some time. And again, that's a political economic decision that uh, the advertising companies are making, right? Um, it's not necessarily that we want that, that had to compress all these things. But yeah, the elimination of attention span is, I think, really dangerous. Um, Noam Chomsky uh, talks about uh, c- concision. Uh, and he sort of talks about, because I don't know if you know the work of Noam Chomsky, but yeah. he can be very, you know, slow, <laughs> thoughtful, <laughs> takes his time, you know, but, <laughs> and, but his whole thing is like, well, you know what? And he points out complex ideas take time, period, you know? And so when you don't have an attention span, and this gets to the politics, you're much more open to hearing a reason that is quick, mm-hmm. not deep. Uh, or always accurate. <laughs> or accurate. No, it doesn't matter, right? It's like the reason why you're poor is because of this guy, right? That's easy, quick, right? And then you don't have time to hear about, like, you know, all these sort of political economic factors about why this person you know, uh, is, you know, came across, say, the border and is working at this place and, you know, why, you know, everyone should be sort of on the same page about the So to have, you know, a more thoughtful answer requires time. And so that's also, I think, one of the reasons why people just jump into these hate modes. It's easier to manipulate people when they have no attention span. You can just come up with a quick, snappy answer. Yeah. And I see that in the faces of my students, you know, it's like, man, it's like, I better get this point out fast because people aren't going to hang on to something that's more complex. And that's kind of dangerous. It's certainly as dangerous for this country. I mean, if I could sort of look at it uh, internationally, I think that more and more, you know, people in the United States in particular, because we are in such a sort of hypertext society are losing their attention span. And I think we're going to really lose out uh, if you're looking at it from international perspective, because a lot of other people still have their attention span. (laughs) You know, I think that that's why I think that there is a shift going on to other countries that that have uh, more of an ability to sort of think uh, deeper than than we do because we are so easily distracted. Uh, well, one of the things I worked on a film uh, a, 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 you know, a while ago 
called Newisagobia is not for sale. I've worked with uh, Western Shoshone Indians in Nevada, uh, and I <clears throat> and there was a big sort of land fight going on between the tribe and the Bureau of Land Management. And I went there and did interviews with them, and <clears throat> you know, life in even I mean, life <clears throat> in the country is slower, particularly when you're in an, a very rural area. Um, and so like I had to make an aesthetic choice for this film, um, uh, because I'm used to like, I was used to more like cutting things to like rap music and stuff mm. like that. And it's like, it's a totally different rhythm out there. And so I had to really change my editing style to like have some quiet, you know, leave this, these birds chirping in this, uh, uh, you know, in the middle of the narration, leaves some pauses because it was more reflective of life in very rural Nevada. Um, and I think that it's hard to do. I, I can sense now, like if, if I'm showing like a clip of a film and it's just like moving a little, you know, there's not a car chase every 10 seconds. I can just see people like kind of like getting like, okay, well, what's, What's next? It's really hard to um, slow down and yeah. like just, you know, people want faster and faster. Yeah. The only hope, a huge hope I have is actually in the podcasting space. And it's not to like gas ourselves up here, mm -hmm. but if you look at the podcasting world, like statistically, the US is by and large the biggest listener, like audience. And a lot of podcasts, a lot of the most famous ones are two to three, sometimes four hours long and people listen. So I'm hoping that, and it also allows a nuance to enter the conversation because we're talking about complexity and ideas. And that's kind of our goal with this medium is it forces nuance to enter the conversation. I think it's totally true. And I think that is, um, a really, I think podcasts are really interesting phenomenon. Um, I saw this really funny thing. Okay, maybe it was a TikTok or something. <laughs> <laughs> no, it wasn't. It was just like a, you know, it was just like a meme thing, and it was like um, someone has writing. Oh, you know, they should, they should come up with this kind of um, audio platform that is like that can comment on things happening in the world, like in real time, like live. And the answer at the bottom goes, radio, radio you yeah. idiot. It's radio. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. And yeah, you know, I just thought that was so funny. But I think it is really interesting phenomena, the growth of the popularity of, uh, of uh, you know, the, this format, you know. And uh, it, it, so when I teach the radio class, you know, we do, uh, it goes out live to all the Davis um, it also goes on live on the internet, but it's also a podcast, you know, yeah. it's automatically podcast. And people are really interested. My, my, the, the class fills like in a heartbeat. I mean, it's, you know, and it's because people are really interested in that. Yeah. But it, it is interesting. It's podcasts, right? As you said, they're, they're long and, and people listen to them. And I think people see the value in them. So I think, I think that's really interesting. I think that that's really kind of the opposite end of yeah. social, you know, the sort of newer forms of media that I think is definitely worth encouraging. Do you see a new countercultural movement appearing 
in the now in the near future as a rebellion against this hyper fast paced social media world as we're starting to unveil more of the detriments that comes along with it. Yeah, I definitely do. I mean, you know, you can't, you can't, I would never make predictions about things because Mm -hmm. it's not the way the world works, you know. Um, But I definitely think that there is a building desire to get rid of a lot of this stuff and go back into a life that's real, visceral. Um, uh, I think, I think, you know, you can sort of, there's short-term trends, there's longer-term trends, you know, there's very long trends. Um, I think that there is going to be kind of a rebellion against a lot of this stuff. And I think there's, um, well, I mean, we've seen it in other things. I mean, if you're familiar with like, for example, the slow food movement, you know, where um, there was, uh, you know, it's still there, of course, like people realizing that, oh, you know, it's not just, you know, for a while it's like, you know, food was supposed to be quick and um, uh, easily accessible and cheap, whatever. And and obviously over the years it's been like, well, no, that's not really great. Let's, you know, let's get back to like cooking things from scratch and going to the garden and planning, picking your own stuff. I mean, you know, the whole, whatever it's called, farm to fork phenomena, whatever, people are really interested in that. And, um, you know, Years ago, people would not have thought that because we were moving more and more to industrialized agriculture. I mean, people were not, and and we've seen these waves, of course. In the 60s, there was a big wave. There was very much an anti sort of big tech kind of movement where people wanted to get back to the farm, you know, grow stuff, uh, do things on your own, your own handicraft. You know, I mean, there's, that's definitely part of it, you know. I mean, you can even look at the growth of microbreweries, you know. I mean, it's like people want to make their own beer and have their own yeah. local stuff and get together. And I think, I think that's a positive thing. I, 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 I see that as being connected to this also, you know. A lot of economists would go, well, people, don't, people aren't going to pay more for beer you know, uh, well, yeah, they are going to pay they more yeah. <laughs> if they can, if there's, you get all these other benefits of going into hanging out a place and your neighbors are there and the people who made the beer are right there. And, you know, it's just a different scene. So, yeah, I, I definitely think that there is a kind of brewing rebellion will be against a lot of this stuff. I mean, I think people want to live authentic lives. Uh, and so much of social media is inauthentic, you know, it's phony and fake and, um, not very satisfying. I think a lot of that too is going to come down to, as we talked about before with the mechanism of technology, your phone's a black box. You can do everything you want with it. And I think that countercultural shift will likely come from people getting dumber phones listening to music on audio specific devices and kind of separating the purpose that they're trying to get out of each thing and being more intentional with how they're using it. Yeah. Well, that's an interesting point. Yeah. I mean, one of the things, where is the stupid iPhone? 
<laughs> I don't know where it is, but yeah. It's a good um, thing. Yeah, I have a great graphic, actually, that I use in my media archaeology, like going back to like whatever, 1990, and you had, you know, you had your, your calendar, you had your telephone, you had your radio, you had your TV, you had your record player, you had yeah. your typewriter, you know, and then all of it is whoosh, on your phone, Yeah, you know, and... Yeah, because back in the back then everything was discreet. You know, to write a letter, you used a you know, well, that maybe not. You guys don't go back that far, but <laughs> yeah. And now everything is put together. And I think that there is um, value. Um, one of the things I would like to point out is like the growth in of vinyl. You know. Um, that is in terms of being unpredictable. Like no one would have predicted that the, the resurgence, right? Would, what the resurgence of vinyl? Yeah, yeah. I mean, like what, that just came out of the blue, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and now, of course, you know, most bands don't even bother releasing CDs anymore. Um, that it's vinyl, yeah. uh, so you can you don't need to release a CD because people can just download it. But you can sell an LP piece of vinyl because people want that. People want the the connection to this material object, you know. So these things are really hard to predict. Um, Some of your work has talked about um, communications from below. Mm -hmm. Could you speak to some of that research and mm -hmm. then how that could be tied into our current waves, ways of communicating from below using social media and mm -hmm. some of those like different platforms that we have nowadays? Well, I think the idea of communications from below is really central to democracy. Um, and it's a different model of communications. Mm -hmm. Like we, for example, we use the term broadcasting, right? People mm -hmm. use broadcasting. Well, what does broadcasting mean? Broadcasting means that there is a central point that is broadcasting so it comes from one central point to millions of people. That's inherently undemocratic. I mean, it's hierarchical. It's, you know, and so, you know, the whole idea of challenging that is kind of central to some of the things that I'm working on. Horizontal communication is, you know, like person-to-person -person communication. That's not necessarily part of that centralized network, I think is important to democracy. And certainly that's, happened a lot with social media. I mean, I don't, I'm not knocking all social media. I think there's some really valuable things that come out of that. The fact that I can create my own message and send it out to a million people and no one really can stop me. I think that's important. You know, I'm just, I'm not, you know, that's, you know, so, you know, I'm interested in looking at, at technology and encouraging technologies that, that uh, uh, encourage those kinds of communication, communication from below. Um, and not just the central broadcasting model, which um, I think is bad news. Uh, you know, that that's when you have <clears throat> certain certain networks, you know, that have a lot of power uh, to tell people what to think. And I don't I don't think that's a that's a good idea. Uh, it's certainly not democratic. I mean, I mean, we can't you know, we're too large as society to go back to like, um, you know, having just mass meetings to decide our things. But, you know, we can have communication models that uh, encourage more uh, participation from everybody. I mean, I'm really against the idea of a passive consumer of media. I mean, yeah. that's why one of my things is that people should make their own media. 
it should be a two-way thing. And if you look at, you know, and that's one of the advantages say, of looking at the history of media, like radio, when radio first came out, a lot of people envisioned radio as being a two-way form of communication, that people would be able to communicate with one another, uh, not necessarily as a central centralized thing going out to all these passive people, but a form of radio that can be two-way. Uh, and some of the earlier early people who were experimenting with, with radio back in the 20s and 30s defined radio like that. Like, this is amazing because we can communicate with one another now. And they were not interested in the centralized mode of communication. Um, but I think anything that encourages those kind of democratic uh, communication structures is is good. Have you looked at blockchain technologies and decentralized organizations mm -hmm. that that movement is starting to create? Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, blockchain, you know, and it's, you know, partner bitcoin <clears throat> they're kind of you know i mean there's advantages and disadvantages i mean i think it's kind of precarious to a certain extent i mean the idea of blockchain because it is decentralized uh it's decentralized form of uh you know notation or whatever i think is interesting and some of the uses that people want to put that to i think are more nefarious i mean i was looking at people who were uh, involved in what would become blockchain uh, a long time ago. Uh, and the, where they were coming from was not to increase political power from the grassroots. Um, it was really, I mean, alarmingly to me, it was a scheme to avoid paying taxes. <laughs> <laughs> and they were upfront about it. I mean, they're kind of like libertarian kind of types. And it's like, well, you know, so I could move a million dollars from my account here to my account there, and no one's going to know. Um, I don't really see, you know, what that has to do with bettering society or enhancing democracy. But, I mean, there is something important about um decentralizing all of that all that uh information um uh, economic you know financial in information in fact if you go back to the bruce sterling idea of um that i was mentioning at the very beginning of this about what was media um one of the forms of media that bruce sterling says is should be considered is uh financial transactions because it's a form of communication essentially like i'm paying you this amount of money. Money is oftentimes a communications model. I mean, it's part of that. It's an Probably exchange. the most true communication we could really have. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and, and that, yeah, commerce uh, is been at the heart of communication. I mean, you know, the growth of cities and roads and all that stuff has to do with commerce. And mm -hmm. those are early forms of communication, you know, ultimately. So I think there's potential, for, you know, for blockchain stuff to be used. But like, it's, it's like any form of technology. It can be a double-edged sword. Yeah. I think especially with blockchain too, it's like the idea sounds very beautiful mm -hmm. and utopian. But when you look at the actual companies, a lot of the times it looks like it's innovation for innovation's sake. Mm -hmm. And they're all competing amongst themselves to get the best blockchain, the best Web3, whatever it is. But on the user end, it's kind of disconnected. It doesn't feel empowering. Well, that is, yeah, interesting you bring that up because, you know, um, you know, in terms of what's going on in the economy today, I mean, a lot of uh, 
venture capital is drying up, drying up. I don't know if there was an article in the New York Times recently that was kind of illuminating because, you know, that whole model of um, startups kind of making a lot of claims to attract venture capital to then hopefully decimate your competition and carve out a part of the market for you. Uh, and a lot of these things are just schemes that don't really have any backing. Um, I would check this article out if you haven't seen it. I, it's yeah. something I felt for a long time. We could definitely link it to on the website. Yeah. Um, and those sorts of things are done a lot. I mean, I, I could you know, point out one company that I worked for as a tech had a product that was a good product, but no one would buy it. Uh, so they went to one company with this product and said, um, well, you should buy this product because it'll make your product much better. And, and, and they said, well, no, we don't need that because no one's doing it. And they said, oh, well, your competitor just bought one. Uh, and so, you know, they're going to have this benefit. And they'll, so, they, so they bought one. They said, oh, well, if the competitor has, but they lied. And so wow. then they went to the other competitor yeah. and said, well, your competitor just bought one of these. <laughs> and, you know, that's the way a lot of businesses get started. You know, I mean, uh, and so there's a lot of this sort of hype that goes on to drive this thing. And it might be a good product, you know, but there's still a lot of hype that you have to kind of sort through. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems like it's, a little bit ahead of its time in a way like it, what is that those technologies uh-huh they they might be useful but they're not we're not quite ready mm -hmm. yet and yeah kind of like off of that what do you think our relationship with technology tells us about our collective identity um well that's a big question um we're kind of um well, it's it's not just technology. I mean, technology is so tied up in this country with the market, with convenience, with prestige, with um, your persona. You know, it's it's a very difficult thing. I mean, it's a cultural question. It's an economic question. Um, it's like a lifestyle choice. I mean, it's it's it'd be hard to answer that. Um, without really explain, going into a lot of detail, but technology has definitely become, you know, a status thing for people, um, even beyond the benefits that it brings. Um, you know, you have to get the best headphones, you have to get the best car, the newest model of this, and that kind of adds to your personal sense of, prestige, I guess. And, uh, and it's a complicated question. I mean, it, uh, it's definitely a very strong part of our society, far more than many other places. I mean, other countries too, particularly in the industrial world, share that. But a lot of other countries could care less. I mean, you know. Uh, Do you think that's a recent phenomenon? Or if you go back and look at when we first started driving cars around, like when cars became popular, if you had that Cadillac, yeah. you made it. So how do you think it is exacerbated right now? Or do you think we're just doing the same thing we've always done just in a new medium? I, I think it's always been there. I mean, it's at the 
core of advertising, <clears throat> um, the kind of creation of consumer demand has been pushed in this country for a very long period of time. Um, really cr starting primarily with, with, with radio. I mean, that's the, the model of radio in this country was to sell. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's, you know, the very first radio station commercial was owned by Westinghouse and they wanted to sell radios because Westinghouse made radios. So we have to do good radio programming. So people want to listen to radio and they'll buy our radios. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't until later that they branched out to like, okay, well now we can sell other things, you know, soap in particular, you know, that's, you know, soap operas and stuff like that, you yeah. know? Um, but yeah, it's been, uh, it's all intertwined. I mean, I mean, I think it gets to, I don't know, I guess the heart of a lot of university research is um, that you can't, these things are so connected, like you really can't, you know, untangle political economy from uh, sociology, from the arts, from, you know, they're all so in intertwined, uh, our, our culture, you know. Yeah. In what ways does understanding the engineering allow us to get more out of the medium afterwards? Hmm. Well, yeah, I think that leads to a few things. I mean, one of the things more sort of immediate, concretely, uh, is the whole right to repair movement, which I'm very much a promoter of. Because mm -hmm. um, I, I teach an electronics class here. I have an electronics lab. Uh, and so, um, I mean, this is very sort of an immediate concern, but like, you know, we live in a disposable society mm -hmm. um, where we oftentimes don't have the ability to repair anything. So if things break down, we have to throw it away. And I don't know if you know about this, but there's all kinds of laws that are coming out of the books now to uh, have the right to repair. I mean, just in terms of empowering yourself, I mean, in my electronics class, I show people how to open things up and how to read a schematic and how to identify uh, something that's burnt out or, or broken and how to use a soldering iron, how to unconnect things. And um, I think that's ultimately empowering that, mm -hmm. you know, for people to understand that they're not at the mercy of these te techno gods somewhere. Yeah. I mean, it all makes sense. You can understand how to read a schematic. You can understand how to uh, switch out this chip, you know, um, and I think that leads to other things also. Uh, it leads, I think it breaks people away from being passive because uh, I'm really, you know, interested in, in activating an engaged population of, I just don't like, this thing doesn't work, so throw it away. Take some control over your life. <laughs> Open yeah. it up. See what the problem is. It could be something really simple. It probably is something really simple. Mm -hmm. Um so that's like a very con, you know, and that leads to other things too. It's like, don't be a passive consumer. It's like, don't just sit there and complain about what you see on your TV. You know, you can get up and go out and make a difference. You know, uh, you know, your actions mean something. Uh, you can take some control over your life, you know, and sometimes it's a small thing to like, repair something for yourself, but it leads to just an enhanced sense of confidence that like, yeah, I can, you know, I can do other things as, as well. You know, I can fix other things. So, um, 
that's one of the sort of areas that I, uh, I like to promote, you know, is, is you don't get up and get up and do it yourself. I mean, uh, I think just something to be said about, you know, DIY, I don't know if you're familiar with DIY culture, but you know, it really comes out of punk rock, you know, the whole mm -hmm. DIY thing of like, you know, book your own damn life, you know, you know, I think that's empowering. Um, Could you speak a little bit more on that? DIY? Yeah, and like the and the influence with punk rock. Well, punk rock, I think uh, certainly, you know, I mean, some of my ideas come out of punk rock, certainly. I mean, because it is that whole DIY thing. I mean, um, you know, book your own life, make your own life, um, and um, <clears throat> uh, you know, don't be afraid to like you know reuse other things. I mean, the whole thing of like you know zines, the zine culture, it was heavily connected to. Uh, and, and zine culture actually is very connected to guerrilla television. There was a lot of overlap. Could you define zine? Yeah. So a zine is like a handmade, small production of printed ma material, mm -hmm. sort of from the grassroots. There's lots of zines in the, particularly in the 80s. Uh, um, so, you know, let's just say there was a, you know, a couple of handful of artists who were hanging around and they were in a punk band. It's like, hey, let's make a zine. Then maybe they'll, do uh, like a few hundred of them. And is that short for magazine? Yeah, a zine okay. is short for magazine. Okay. Um, we like to call it, at the time, we like to call, uh, what we were promoting, because I was in, involved in that, was laughingly a, a xerocracy <laughs> instead of democracy. Because yeah. at the time, Xerox machines yeah. were gods. Yeah. And so, you know, it, it, that's how you got word out before social media. I yeah. mean, it's like, put a zine out. I have, I have tons of zines, you know. Uh, and a lot of times it was definitely a form of guerrilla media because, um, it, you know, it, it came out of a lot of bike messenger culture also, mm -hmm. particularly in San Francisco. A lot of people worked like down, like maybe they worked downtown. Uh, every big company had big, fast Xerox machines. Yeah. And that was the resource. Like some people I know would just stay at these crappy jobs because when no one was looking, they'd go in and <laughs> yeah, print a yeah. hundred other zines yeah. on the Xerox <laughs> machine after hours. You'd have like a lookout and you'd have like, all right, all right, we only got, you know, 20 more off these yeah. things. And, uh, and so, you know, that's definitely guerrilla media. And that was, you know, I mean, I think that was sort of social media before, you know, the whole internet thing, yeah. World Wide Web, it came off. Um, and you know the punk punk rock culture was very much based on that. You know, if you look at um, like the calendars for like Gilman Street in Berkeley, mm -hmm. you know, which is I don't know if you're familiar with that, but a lot of the you know CBGBs, a lot of the places yeah. where bands were playing, they're all done in that Xerox mode, Xerocracy mode, but but willfully um, detect, you know, de, you know, not technical so that's why you had a lot of the cut you know copy and paste you know you'd see like you know you cut words out of a magazine yeah, yeah. and you paste it on the thing and then you xerox it yeah that whole aesthetic i think was you know really kind of central in, in the same way hip-hop culture was you know created really at the same time this is like mid to late 70s really when hip hop culture started and it was similarly based on a, on a similar idea because it was based on vinyl records. And this is at a time when vinyl records were starting to die, you know, and because 
people were throwing away their vinyl and like, you know, people in the South Bronx, they could find, yeah, I, I found these 10 old records in a trash can. Well, let's put them on here and get some, you know, scratch these things and get some beats happening. And we'll assemble these old funky amplifiers and speakers. And, you know, that was very much sort of, you know, uh, along the lines of, you know, running concurrently with punk rock. In fact, there was uh, when, because LPs were dying, mm -hmm. CDs were coming popular. There was actually a lot of people who had sort of a, uh, conspiracy ideas that like the media industry was killing vinyl uh, because they saw it, they wanted to kill hip hop. And wow. so uh, this was like a, a big thing coming out of the black community, uh, hip hop. And it's like, we don't want that. We want to have these CDs that you can't do that to. Now, of course, you know, there's always fight back. And so I have like a, a CDJ over there that you can actually scratch the CD. Oh, wow. <laughs> so there's, you know, and in fact, that's a scratching turntable. Could you uh, walk us through what is scratching? Oh, scratching is just like when you, you know, you select, you have, you know, sort of dual turntable, you have something on turntable, mm -hmm. you turn it into scratch mode and like you find like a, a beat or a drum beat or, or sound you want. And then, you know, you grab the record and you move the vinyl back and forth manually on the needle. So, yeah, like that. And, you know, of course, that's really at the basis of a lot of hip hop finding these beats and or putting them, you know, using them over and over again. I mean, mm -hmm. scratching, you know, An analogous to like clipping nowadays. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, there was a guy named uh, DJ Kubert who was really, I mean, there's been all kinds of famous scratchers, yeah. but I mean, you know, you hear, you listen to a lot of that music and there's big, you know, a lot of scratching in the background of hip hop stuff. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's also beautiful too, because the sample culture evolved and like the way that they were able to connect from old movements and kind of build upon them. Sampling, yeah, is a big thing that I actually go over a lot in, in media archaeology. It has a really long, history um there's one uh, what's it called i'm pulling a blank on the name of it but uh there's one particularly uh um heavily sampled piece of music that comes from stravinsky uh that made it into um uh scratching culture um and I'm pulling blank on it because I, I don't know anything about classical music, <laughs> but it was essentially a you know piece of music, 100 years old. That you know, if you're interested, I can show you this thing that made it onto um, all of the early uh, synthesizers, like one of the preset. Oh yeah, it has a sound like that, and it's actually a sample yeah. from a Stravinsky yeah. a, a recording of you know 100 years ago or whatever. So there's a lot of overlap between those things definitely and as we kind of like wrap up in a way wrap yeah yeah <laughs> there you go could you talk to us about what you're doing now with open country mm. so yeah open country you know i warned you i'm kind of all over the map right yeah, yeah. I, I see the threads to all these things but open country is a really long-term project i've been working on with my my wife glenda um and it is um a long history the history of uh, history and politics of country music 
Um, and so uh, there is a really long history there that like, this kind of got me interested because I've always been a fan of country music. Um, I listened to a lot of, I used to listen to a lot of country music, but not contemporary country music, mm -hmm. none of the older stuff. Um, and I had my own ideas of <clears throat> why I like country music. Um, <clears throat> but when I came here to Davis, uh, some of the you know, younger students were listening to country music and I would listen to it. It's like, that ain't country music. That's, <laughs> I don't know what that is. That's like some weird pop, pop Nashville stuff with this kind of right wing kind of tinge to it. And it's like, you know, that, that's totally, you know, uh, a, a different thing <clears throat> that, that, that contemporary country. So we kind of launched into looking at the history of it going back really to the beginning of the recording industry in the, in the 20s uh, and looking at who was, you know, where the first country, like, for example, the first 24-hour country radio station in the United States was in San Francisco, right? Wow. People like, huh? <laughs> like, what? Like, isn't Nashville? It's like, no, Nashville was not. I mean, Nashville had um, the Grand Ole Opry, of course, yeah. but... There were plenty of other venues like the Grand Ole Opry. They were actually bigger. Chicago had it, had one of the hugest ones. Um, uh, so anyway, this and, and the politics of a lot of those country music people that we now call country were very unlike what they, they wouldn't play them on country music today. Mm -hmm. I mean, in some of the most obvious examples are like Loretta Lynn singing about the birth control pill. I don't know if you know the her song, no. the pill. No. I mean, you know, this was a song about how happy she was because she had access to birth control pills. Yeah. Um, they would not play that on contemporary country music today. Um, you know, a lot of the early, you know, songs that we consider, um, well, one of the things I, I look at this history is that the, the distinction between country music and folk music, mm -hmm. because at a, for a long time, it was all folk music. Country music was not even created as a genre until the fifties. Now the fifties happened to coincide with McCarthyism when there was a political movement to sort of separate the left wing from the right wing. Um, and it's only then when you start to hear people talking about country music, and it's only then when sort of starts to grow in Nashville, that's what that comes okay. out of. Because, you know, who is like the godfather of, who are some, like Hank Williams, for example. Yeah. Hank Williams called himself a folk musician. He never called himself a country musician. And Hank Williams is like the gold standard you know, to a lot of people, you know, that just didn't exist. And then there was a lot of like manipulation of people trying to confuse what people stood for. Johnny Cash is a good example. Like Johnny Cash was, you know, fought for the rights of prisoners. He fought for the rights of Native Americans. <clears throat> he was <clears throat> definitely not a right-wing politician, but, you know, a lot of the country music people want to think that he was. Uh, but he wasn't. So this was a whole research thing that had been going on for a long time because it's been on a back burner for a long time, uh, producing this feature-length film on the history and politics of country music. And so yeah. that's, that's I'm kind of we're wrapping that up and we hope to actually release it soon and it's going to go on the road. We already have a pretty big demand for it. Yeah, that's fascinating. Kind of reminds me, like, correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't Fortunate Son get like, adopted by the whole right-wing culture of be almost pro-war when it's clearly an anti-war song. It's totally, yeah, Fortunate yeah. Son is totally an anti war Well, Creedence Clearwater yeah. is a whole interesting case in and yeah. of itself because, yeah, they 
they really crossed um, genres. I mm -hmm. mean, because they are a left-wing band out of Berkeley. Uh, <laughs> and they're, <clears throat> you know, uh, some of their stuff. Some of their stuff, because most of the stuff, when you see this stuff being clipped for things, they don't include all the lyrics. Yeah. They only include, like, you know... The same thing with Bruce Springsteen, yep. born in the USA. I mean, people think, yeah, this is like, you know, yay America. It's like Played every 4th of July. Yeah, I <laughs> know. It's like, okay, we'll listen to the whole song. Yeah. <laughs> I hate yeah. to disappoint you. But yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of that, um, uh, you know, and again, you know, ties into the technology because radio uh, is heavily monopolized. There's really only two radio conglomerates that own almost everything. Uh, they own hip hop, they own country, they own rock. Uh, but, you know, and their country music, they're very sort of protective on their country music radio stations. And, mm -hmm. you know, they won't, uh, th they won't play stuff that's, uh, might alienate or confuse their audience. It doesn't uh, fall in line with their messaging. Yeah. I mean, that's if you remember the whole, I don't yeah. know, you probably don't remember the whole Dixie Chicks thing. Dixie Chicks. Uh, uh were like top of the country heap. And then they said some disparaging words about George Bush. And then <laughs> they were eliminated from all of the country crazy. radio stations. Yeah. They actually had DJs smashing their, you know, their CDs on air and stuff like that. And yeah. that was that. And that's why they're no longer the Dixie Chicks. <laughs> they're the Chicks, I think, right? They changed their name. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. there's been a lot of that sort of stuff going yeah. on. Yeah, yeah. I think it's cool now too, because we're starting with social media to see a lot of artists speaking out about like the labels and how they influence lyrics. Like there's some artists that when they do their own music kind of live or whatnot, it sounds really good and it seems personal. And then you look at what they've published for their albums and it's like, well, that's not, uh -huh. they seem like two different people. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, that's when you get in the whole, you know, uh, the whole business model. I mean, the whole c corporate culture uh it's just, you know like marketing and you know uh business decisions and who gets to play what and what venues you play yeah. i mean it's all mixed up in, in in marketing and stuff so it's i mean that's one of the things we get into in this in this film talking about the impact that uh radio the radio companies have over culture that the that the culture industry has over what we hear, what we listen to, you know. Yeah. Um, it, it's, it, it's contested terrain though. I mean, it's, you know, that, that's why, uh, it's one of the advantages of having a decentralized media system uh, because things will come up from below, you yeah. know, uh, and catch people unawares. Yeah. Um, hip hop was like that. Like for a long time, you never heard hip hop on the radio, mm -hmm. like, ever. MTV, which yeah. was, they wouldn't play it. Wow. Um, uh, but, and then they discovered that there is a huge uh, black market of tape cassettes being handed around from person to person in the millions. And you have all these people who are listening to hip hop, they're just doing it their own way. And and that's when, you know, the, the corporations go, oh, okay, well, okay, fine. We're going to play this <laughs> yeah. stuff because we can make money at it. You know, and there's a lot of, punk rock was like that too. Right? I mean, but you couldn't, you wouldn't hear punk rock on the radio ever. I mean, but a lot of people were listening to it. Uh, they'd go to venues, they'd pass tapes around, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. So a lot of things sort of come up from the grassroots. I mean, that's kind of the media that I like to promote, things that kind of come up from the bottom. As we part, do you have any 
advice for students? Um, yeah, so I'm really, um, I'm engaged with students here. I mean, I think a lot of professors are like, they're here f to do their research and they have to teach. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> I actually like teaching a lot. I mean, that's actually why I came into this. I think that I feel like that's the way I give back because I had a lot of teachers that turned me on to sort of education. And as you know, from, from the beginning of this talk, like I was not on that educational track at all. Yeah. But, mm. uh, so for the students, I think it's really important to take control of your education. Uh, and when you're on campus, that I think it's important to seek out people that you're interested in. Don't be afraid to move out of the box that you're put in. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you have to struggle around that because you're in a program. A lot of times the program doesn't allow or doesn't like you to wander away from the box. And I think that's very discouraging. So I think that like, if there's a class you're interested in taking that is on another side of campus, do it. You know, um, you're here to be exposed to all these other things. Uh, and uh, yeah, so to sort of take control of over your education. Um, get involved in things, definitely meet your professors, you know, don't be afraid to knock on a, the door and, and go in. That's going to be really important to you later. Um, so many people don't do that. Just don't take advantage of their time here. I think you should just, this is a, an unusual time in your life where you have this space to expand your mind and, and be exposed to do things. You should take advantage of it. That's great. Well, thank you, Professor Drew. Okay, thanks for having me. Great. Thank you. Good luck. To continue your learning, go to our website, discoveringacademia.com. There, you'll find the show notes, resources mentioned, ways to get involved, and much more pertaining to each professor. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, leave a review, and join our newsletter to stay up to date. Until next time. <laughs>